0: The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capitol Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capitol Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, are from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at capitalcommunitychurch.com. We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. Tonight we are doing uh, something a little different because tonight is our, uh, our, prayer, ne- our prayer meeting, uh, our prayer night. Uh, we're not going to do any music. So I'm going to immediately lead with our Bible teaching for tonight, and then instead of doing Q&A like we've normally done uh, so far in the series, we're going to immediately transition uh, to probably about 15, uh, 20 minutes of prayer. So tonight we've got a lot to do, but let me go ahead and open us up with prayer, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to the throne of grace, and we we desire to be in your presence, We desire to know you for who you truly are. We thank you, Lord, for this truth that you've given us in your word, that you've revealed yourself to us. What a privilege it is to study the word of God, divine revelation, and to know you truly and honestly. We pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us tonight as we study your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So last week we looked at this rule from 1 Samuel chapter 2. I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. And last week we saw that this is the non-negotiable rule of honor. That this rule is found throughout Scripture, everywhere you look. That God honors this rule, abides by this rule. And you see in verse 30, remember, the Lord sends a man of God to Eli, and it says, Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, and here's the rule, those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. So those people that honor the Lord, God says, those people will be weighty in my heart. Remember, honor means to be weighty, to be respected, to be treasured. God says, those people that honor me, I will honor. Those who esteem me lightly, I will esteem those people lightly. Okay, so that's the rule. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to Take a little side trail, okay? And we are going to think about the weighty things of God. One time I took a class in seminary called Advanced Greek Grammar. And it was an elective. And the first day of class, the, the the professor taught Semitic languages, he probably knew 16 languages. And he comes in and he goes, Uh, Today begins advanced Greek grammar. This is an elective. This class is sink or swim, and I'm not here to collect the sinkers, and we began translating the epistle to Diognetus. Okay. Um, Tonight, we are going into the deep end of the pool, the deep end of the pool, so Don't worry if at at some point you're like, oh my goodness, where we're at, I I promise you there'll be moments where you can come up for air, but stay with me as much as you can. I promise you, you, you are going to be rewarded in what we are about to think about. But the question that I want to put before you is this, who is God to demand that we honor him? Is God an egomaniac, right? I mean, if, if, if you had uh, a child, and that child came to his friends and says, if you honor me, I will honor you. If you treat me, treat me lightly, you're done in my eyes. If we had a child or an employee or anybody that we worked with that said, what God just says in First Samuel two thirty, we we would say, man, this guy needs some counseling sessions. We we need some we need some discipline. We need we need to come around this person and and talk to them. But what we see from God, over and over and over and over again in Scripture, is this demand that he be honored that he be worshiped that he be glorified it's really when you when you take a step back and think about it it's really startling how often you see god saying worship me honor me glorify me it's over and over again i'm just going to give you a few examples okay you remember when we saw this this is when jesus encountered the woman at the well jesus tells her, this is John 4, 23, and then, and then 24, he says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father is seeking people to worship him. That word is zoteo, and it means to go after, to, to find and, and bring up. The Father is seeking people to worship him. Psalm 147.11 says the Lord takes pleasure. Listen to this. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope, in His steadfast love. Have you ever thought about that concept of the pleasure of God? That God takes pleasure in certain things? We think about what we pleasure all the time, right? But what does God take pleasure in? The psalmist says God takes pleasure in those that fear his name. That that pleases the very heart of God. And then, of course, you have the first commandment. You remember the first commandment? Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. That's the very first commandment. That's the first one. Numero uno is you shall not worship anybody else. You, you To me belongs all the worship. How, how can God demand that? Is that selfish of God to demand that we worship and honor Him? Now, we're going to look at this biblically in a second. But before we do, and, and I debated about whether or not to do this with y'all tonight. Because, uh, what we're going to look at is is requires your thinking cap. But I decided, you know what? Y'all are hungry because you're here on Sunday night. And so what I want to do is I want to show you how Jonathan Edwards answered this question. Jonathan Edwards is probably the greatest mind that America has ever produced, certainly the greatest theologian that America has ever produced produced. He lived from 1703 to 1758. He uh, was just a remarkable individual. He was uh, greatly used by God in the first great awakening. You remember his great sermon, the title of his great sermon? Who remembers the name of the sermon that was so famous? Yeah. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. But I I want to show you how Edwards handled this for several reasons. One is because I want to expose you to Jonathan Edwards because he's been so helpful to me. But two, I want you to start breathing this God-centered air that he breathed. And I want you to just think about these quotes because they're such uh, remarkable quotes. Listen to what he says. He says, this is his argument for why God... Has himself as the chief end for why he created the world, or, or in other words, why God demands that we honor Him, that we worship Him, worship Him. So, first thing He says is that God doesn't receive anything from the world. Here's the quote: No notion of God's last end in the creation of the world is agreeable to reason, which would truly imply or infer any indigence insufficiency, immutability in God, now listen to this, or any dependence of the creator on the creature for any part of his perfection or happiness. Here's what he's saying. God doesn't need us to be happy. God's independently happy. He doesn't, he didn't need to create the world to add something to himself. You know, I, I need to create the world for a nice birthday present to make myself happy. He's saying, no, God was actually completely satisfied in and of himself. That's, that's the first point. Second, God always values what is intrinsically most valuable. So God, as a, as a, as a divine judge values what is truly valuable and despises what is uh, not valuable. Here's what Edwards says, "'Whatever is good and valuable in itself is worthy that God should value for itself and on its own account, or which is the same thing, value it with an ultimate value or respect.'" It is therefore worthy to be ultimately sought by God or made the last end of his action and operation, if it be a thing of such a nature as to be properly capable of being attained in any divine operation. In other words, God values what is most valuable. Third, what is intrinsically most valuable must have pre-existed before the foundation of the world. Here's, here's Edwards, whatever that be which is in itself most valuable and was so originally prior to the creation of the world and which is attainable by the creation, if there be anything which was superior in value to all others, that must be worthy to be God's last end in the creation and also to be his highest end. So God can't create something that is the highest end because then... Uh, God would have needed that in order to create it. All right, it's about to start making sense here in the fourth point, all right? It is reasonable to suppose that he had respect of himself as his last and highest end in this work. Listen to this. This is a direct quote from Edwards. Because he is worthy in himself to be so, being infinitely the greatest and best of beings. Isn't that stunning? So he's saying that God knows that he is infinitely the greatest and best of beings. Now just listen to these quotes. All things else with regard to worthiness. So everything else, importance and excellence, are perfectly as nothing in comparison of him. And therefore, if God esteems, values, and has respect to things according to their nature and proportions, he must necessarily have the greatest respect to himself. It would be against the perfection of his nature, his wisdom, holiness, and perfect rectitude, whereby he is disposed to do everything that is fit to be done to suppose otherwise. Now listen to this one. God is infinitely and most worthy of regard. The worthiness of others is nothing to his, so that to him belongs all possible respect. That, that's honor, right? To him belongs the whole of the respect that any moral agent, either God or any intelligent being, is capable of. To him, listen to this last sentence, to him belongs all the heart. To him belongs all the heart. What's, what's he saying? He's saying that in comparison to God, everything else is but a drop in the bucket. Nothing else compares to him, nothing, not even close. And he's going to go on, I'm not going to go through these last points point by point, but he goes on to argue that God therefore then created the world to go public with his own glory, his own honor, and he created us so that we might see and rejoice in his beautiful perfections. Uh, he, here's a couple more quotes. He says, It seems to be a thing in itself, fit and, des- and desirable, that the glorious perfections of God should be known, and the operations and expression, expressions of them seen by others besides himself. So what he's saying is, is that God created the universe to display His glory. And that is the ultimate reason why you and I are on this planet, is to behold the glory of God, to feel the weightiness of God. Now, you ask yourself, well, what does that do for me? Right? What does that do for me? Look what he says. He says, it is worthy for God to delight in himself. If it is worthy for God to delight in himself, then it is worthy and excellent for his creatures to delight in himself. So you ask, well, how can I be happy? How can I be satisfied? He says, the happiness of the creature consists in rejoicing in God, by which also God is magnified in exalted joy. Or the exalting of the heart in God's glory is one thing that belongs to pray. So I know this is somewhat antiquated language, but I think you hear the heart of what he's saying. He's saying, if you want to be ultimately truly happy, you have to find that happiness in God himself. You have to find that joy in seeing God and rejoicing in his character. He says that is what belongs to praise. Okay, I want to show you how God reveals this now in Scripture. Still with me? I know that was some, some heady theological philosophy right there. But I want to show you how God reveals this in the Word of God. And I want to show you how He reveals it through the revelation of His name. His name. Tonight we are going to be talking about the name of God. Because in the Scriptures, a name represents who you are. Your name symbolizes your character. So God's name is very important. And God's name is explained in Exodus chapter 3. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 3. The context is this. You remember Moses has fled out of Egypt to Sinai, and he has been in the wilderness for how long? Forty years. Forty years he has helped his father-in-law Jethro watch sheep. He's now 80 years old. It says, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. It's called the mountain of God because, you remember, Moses will lead the children of Israel to this mountain. Sometimes it's also called Sinai, Mount Sinai. But it's, it's going to be the mountain of God where, where Moses meets with God. Verse 2 It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now, this is very interesting and significant. Uh, That word angel simply means the messenger of the Lord, and there's a lot of debate about whether this is an actual angel or whether this is God himself. Sometimes in Scripture, uh, what you have is called a theophany, which is an appearance of God, not not in, a, not in the form that he actually is, because God's a spirit. We can never actually see God, but in an in appearance in form uh, that manifests itself to people. And one of these appearances that happens often throughout the Old Testament is called the angel of the Lord. And I believe that this is God himself, and you'll see why in a second. So the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he, that's Moses, looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw, you see that? Verse 4, when the Lord saw, so apparently this, this angel of the Lord is the Lord himself, that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. And, he, and Moses He says, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. And notice how God emphasizes his own holiness. He says, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. That word holy means separate, distinct. You know, in the tabernacle, you had tools that were used for certain reasons. They they could only be used by the priests for these types of sacrifices or these types of ceremonial rituals. They were set apart from other tools. They were holy. And we as believers are called to be what? Holy. Set apart from what? The world, right? Set apart from uh, the, the sins of the flesh. Well, God is holy. God is distinct. He's set apart from us. Yes, we're created in His image, But God is other. He's different. He's perfect. He's eternal. We are not. He's immortal. He's uh, a number of things that we're we're going to talk about. But the point is, is that God is holy. And because of that, he is to be revered. And that's why God says, take off your sandals. You don't want to approach me just like you approach anything else. Like, you know, your father-in-law's tent. You need to take off your sandals, for you are on holy ground. And then God says to him, verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And notice how Moses responds. I think there's great insight here into into the heaviness and the weightiness of the presence of God. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, and notice the Lord's mercy upon His people. He's the Lord says, "I have surely seen the affliction of." and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So God remembers his promise to the, uh, the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He hears the cries of the people, and God pities them. He has mercy upon them. And so now he is approaching Moses to send Moses to bring them up out of Egypt. Verse 10, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now look at verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And then he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So God tells Moses, this is a sign. You will actually bring the people back here to Mount Horeb, to Mount Sinai. Verse 13 is really where we want to focus our study. Look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? In other words, he's asking, who's sending me? If they ask me, who's sending you to come bring us up out of Egypt? What am I supposed to say to them? Now, there's some debate amongst commentators and scholars if at this point they already knew God's name. If you read the book of Genesis, God's covenant name, Yahweh, has already been mentioned uh, at least four times. So I'll, I'll give you those references. Genesis 4.26, Genesis 12.8, Genesis 13.4, Genesis 21.33, Genesis 26.25. So Moses already probably knew what God's name was, but the question that he's asking is, what does your name mean? What is the true identity of God. What does your name mean? He's asking, what is, an, what is the explanation of your name? Okay, so look at God's explanation of his name in verse 14. God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So what God does is he repeats twice the the simple Hebrew verb, ayah, which is just uh, the present verb to mean to be or I am. Eyah, yeser, eyah. I am that I am. And this is God's explanation of his name. And they would uh, essentially shorten that ayah to four letters that the Hebrews would called the tetragrammaton. It's Y-H-W-H. So they, they took Aya and said, okay, God's name then is Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. And this name by all the Jews was so revered that they, when it appears in the Bible, they wouldn't even pronounce it. They wouldn't even say Yahweh. They would say Adonai. They would, they would just use the, the basic term Lord, which is what Adonai is, and, and they wouldn't use that, those four letters. Uh, they wouldn't even pronounce it. So early Christian uh, church, early Christian history, have you ever heard the name Jehovah, God called Jehovah? Um, basically, that's taking the vowels from Adonai, and putting them between the letters of Yahweh. So you, you take the, 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 the Y, the H, the WH, you add the, the vowels from Adonai, that, the A, and go on and so forth, and you get Jehovah as the, the name of God. My point being is that this name amongst the Jews was revered. This name has been throughout history for the past 3,000 years honored. But what is this name saying about God? Remember, we said a name speaks to your identity. What is God saying here that his name means regarding his identity? And, And here's what he's saying. He's saying that he is pure being, that he is the essence of what it means to exist. Let's think about this for a second. World War I. Anybody know the dates of World War I? Anybody remember the dates of World War I, 1914 to 1918? How do you know those dates? Maybe maybe. why don't you know those dates? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> how, how do you know those dates? Because you learned them in a history class, right? Maybe you saw a documentary. Was anybody there? Lived through, live through the, the war to end all wars? No, nobody was there? Wait, so you didn't exist then. You weren't existed in... Existing in 1914. God was. God has, what God is saying is, I am that I am. Is that I am the, I am self-existent. There's a word for that, a theological word. Aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. A S E I T Y. R C R.C. Sproul always used to say, when I hear aseity, chills go down my spine. Chills go down my spine. Have you ever, when I was a little kid, I always used to ask my mom the question, um, when did God begin? You know, God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, but, but where did God come from? And my mom would always just say, well, God's always been. God's always been there, and and you think with your mind, okay, all right, so he goes back a million years, a billion years, a trillion years. You just keep going back, and our minds can't comprehend the fact that God is always there, pure being, the essence of what it means to actually exist. Stephen Sharnock, he's a Puritan, he says this is what that means. He says, God depends upon no other in his essence, knowledge, purposes, and therefore hath no changing power over him. That, that God's not dependent upon anything. We're dependent, right? You and I, we each of us was dependent upon uh, we're here because of our parents and our grandparents and, and numerous uh, events that brought them together and a whole host of other things. You and I are dependent upon the fact that the earth is a certain distance from the sun. We're dependent upon that, the fact that our atmosphere has oxygen in it. We're dependent upon the fact that there's fresh water. We are dependent upon millions of things. God is independent. God is independent. We're fish in the sea, and God's just not the biggest well in the sea. God's outside the sea. He's not, the, he's not even in the same ocean. So, several implications of this. Obviously, what this means is that God is eternal. It's Revelation 1.8. God says, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the Beginning, and the Ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. It means that Everything that you and I know that exists, God created. Everything is derived from him. Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Also, God is holy, because if God is self-existent, no one else compares to him. We are all... um, We are all dependent, right? So Isaiah 6, 3, this is the angels in heaven, the seraphim, and one called to another said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 46, 9 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. There's none like God. There's nobody even in the same category as God. Therefore, listen, so all of this, what God is saying, I am that I am, he's saying all of that that we just covered is encapsulated in my name. Isn't that interesting? All of that is encapsulated in my name. And therefore, the name of God is to be honored and revered. Isn't that the third commandment? Remember the third commandment? Have you ever wondered, okay, you go through the first commandments, you know, you shall have no other gods before me, no graven images. What's the, the third? Take not the Lord's name in vain? Why is that there? Why is that so significant that you add it as one of the commandments? It's significant because the name of God encompasses all that he is. And so... To spurn the name of God is to spurn God Himself. Isaiah forty two eight says, "I am the Lord; that is my name. My glory I give to no other." So God's name is to be revered, to be honored, because it encapsulates who he is. Remember that scene where Indiana Jones and uh, his father are in that little, and this is the last crusade, they're in that little tri-cart coming out of Berlin, and they stop and they have this conversation, and Indiana Jones takes the Lord's name in vain, Sean Connery slaps him. You remember this? He says, that's blasphemy. That's one of the best scenes Hollywood has made in a long time, right? <laughs> But that's right. I mean, I, I, I think I mentioned this last week. I remember my grandfather walking out of movies because they said the Lord's name in vain. I mean, the worst thing that you can have in a movie isn't the, the other cussing or the violence or whatever. The, the worst thing is the blasphemy against Almighty God. That, that God's name would be dishonored. What God is doing is He is proclaiming His name throughout the universe so that His name would be honored. Remember Romans 10.9 that we looked at this morning? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that God raise him from the dead in your heart and believe in your heart, then you will be saved. It's the confession that he is Lord. It's the honoring of, of that name. And God is proclaiming that name. I want to show you this. I want you to just turn a few pages to the right to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. This, this is such an interesting and fascinating chapter. I'm not going to do um, an exposition of it. I'm just going to show you some highlights But they're in the wilderness, they're near Mount Sinai now, so Moses has gone into Egypt, the ten plagues have happened, the the, the first Passover has happened, they've come through the Red Sea, now they're at the mountain, Uh, the children of Israel have made the golden calf, and God has said, I'm not going to go with you now, this is a stiff-necked people. And Moses has essentially separated himself from the camp, because there's all sorts of sin in the camp. So if you look at verse 7, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. This tent isn't the tabernacle. I used to think that growing up. Oh, he would set up the tabernacle. No, no, no. This is a special tent. This is a tent that Moses used to meet with God. And Moses felt like he had to go outside far from the people because of the sin that had been, been present in the camp. And I think there's something there to think about in terms of meeting with God and seeing a great movement of God. This is just a little side note. But revival happens when the people of God say, look, the things of the world we're going to separate from, we're going to put behind us, and we are going to intentionally move to a place where we meet with God. And this is what Moses does. Um, I'll just We'll just read it, and you can just have the mental picture in your mind, okay? So you have the whole camp, you have millions of Israelites. Moses, this one man, sets up this tent outside the camp. He calls it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. So the cloud obviously represents the presence of God. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people, so all the all the Israelites would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now, obviously, this is anthropomorphic language. It's, it's, it's metaphorical. Moses didn't see God face to face. He's just talking about the intimacy in which God communed. Uh, with Moses through his spirit, okay? Now, when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now, Moses begins to intercede with God and begins to pray to God in the tent. So he's in this tent of meeting. And Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. He's basically saying, God, you need to go with us. This is your people. I am your servant. You Remember, you're the one at this mountain who asked me to go get this people. And He said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. So God says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. So now God agrees, my presence will go with you, Moses. And he said to him, so now Moses says to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. In other words, I will go with you. For you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. Talking about Moses. Man, isn't that awesome? Isn't that remarkable? Moses is feeling pretty good about himself. He's feeling pretty good about where he stands with the Lord. Man, I found favor with the Lord. God's now said that he's going to go with us. So Moses goes for it. Moses said, please show me your glory. In other words, I want to see the essence of who you are, God. And look at this. God agrees. God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Now look at this next line. Wouldn't that be enough just to have the goodness of God pass before you? Wouldn't that be enough? I mean, that would be enough for me. But in the mind of God, God says that's not enough. What you also need is this. Look, and I will proclaim before you my name. Isn't that remarkable? So the name of God, which encapsulates all that he is, God says, as I show you my goodness, I will declare, I will proclaim my name, the Lord, I am, Yahweh, I will proclaim it to you. And then look what God adds here. This is so important. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What God is saying here is that I am sovereign and that I am free to do whatever I please. Right? Isn't that what he's saying? He's saying, I am the Lord. I'm the, I am the essence of being, and I will have mercy on whom I shall have mercy, and, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious to. You can't put God in your box. You can't say, God, you're only supposed to like those type of, types of people. God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious to. Hold that thought. Keep that in your mind. So what happens next remember, they're in the tent of meeting when this conversation is taking place, is God instructs Moses to come up onto the mountain. And you remember, they go up onto the mountain, and God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock, right? And God says, you can't see my face. Now, obviously, God doesn't have a face. He's a spirit. But it's, it's, again, it's metaphorical language. You can't see the full manifestation of the glory of God. But you can see that the the back side of it, a partial side of it. I don't know exactly what that means. I don't think anybody knows what that means. I don't even think Moses actually understood what that meant because it's so transcendent. But God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock, and look at verse 6 of, of Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him, and again, he proclaims his name. The Lord, the Lord. Notice, capitalized in your Bible, he, it's the same name that he revealed in, in Exodus 3. Yahweh, Yahweh, I am, I am. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And notice what happens when Moses hears the name of God proclaimed. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped, worshipped. That is the only right response to the revelation of who God is. All right, so that is God proclaiming his name, and our response to that is worship. And the last thing I want you to see tonight is the application of his name. And, and what I mean by that is God over and over and over again brings us face to face with the reality of who He is, what His name means. So when we look at verse 19 of Exodus 33, look at verse 19. God says, I will proclaim you my name, the Lord... And then this phrase, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What God is saying here when he says, I will proclaim to you my name, the Lord, he's saying, like we've covered, that God is pure essence, that God is the creator of everything, right? He's saying that with the Lord. Now, what does he mean when he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. What's God trying to explain there? His sovereignty. You see, God is self-existent. God creates. But then God sovereignly governs the universe. That's what he's communicating there. Now, we call the general governance of God one word, it's one of the most beautiful words in the English language, providence. The governance of God over his creation is called providence. This is Martin Lloyd-Jones describing providence. He said, quote, "...providence means the continuation or the causing to continue of that which has been called into existence." Creation brings things into existence in fulfillment of God's purposes. The doctrine of providence does does not just mean, therefore, that God is a foreknowledge of what is going to happen, but it's a description of his continuing activity of what he does in the world and what he has continued to do since he made the world at the very beginning So what what God is saying here is that God is actively involved in the events and the affairs of the world. Actively involved. Psalm 3311, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Daniel 221, it is he... God who changes the times and the epochs he removes kings and establishes kings he gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding Isaiah 46:10 declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure So God is sovereign Ephesians 1.11 says, He works all things according to the counsel of His will. And that is really hard for us, for us to understand, right? Because we don't see the hand of God in everything. There's things that happen that are tragic. There's difficulties that we face. Uh, there's sickness. There's evil in the world. But as my theology professor said in seminary, God handles sin sinlessly. God is not the author of evil. But yet, God works evil in his plan. Does that make sense? That God's plan involves evil, and it's all going to this ultimate purpose of his name being honored and glorified. But yet, he's not the author of evil. Now, I want you to turn to the right all the way to Romans. And this is where we're going to end, to Romans chapter 9. when we talk about God's freedom, right, God's sovereignty in this world, normally there's, you know, every Christian confession affirms the sovereignty of God. But there's really two categories that we want to say, wait a second, is God really sovereign over this? There's two things that we want to just say, I really don't like the idea that God would be sovereign over these things. You know what those things are? suffering and salvation, or, or evil and salvation. We really don't want to say, man, I, I, I just can't, I, I don't think that God is sovereign over that. I don't think that God is sovereign over salvation. That's, that's a really tricky thing. Well, I want to show you here what, what Paul unfolds. All right, you, you remember Exodus 33? Okay, Romans 9. Look at what Paul says. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why is he upset? Why is he sad? Look at verse 3. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Verse 3 is Paul saying that he would be willing to be damned so that his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters would come to faith in Christ. That that is really remarkable. It, It shows his love, his compassion for people. He says, I would be willing to be accursed and cut off from Christ himself For the sake of my brothers, my sisters, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. That's God choosing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from all the peoples of the world. The glory, think the glory cloud that accompanied them out of Egypt. The covenants, think the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant at Sinai. The giving of the law, the worship at the tabernacle and the temple, all the promises of God. He says, to them belong the patriarchs. In other words, they descended from these guys, right? They're, they're, they're from that race of people, according to the flesh. And according to the flesh is Christ himself, who is God overall, blessed forever. Amen. So here's what he's dealing with, okay? So Paul's going, you remember he would go from city to city. The first place he would go is to the synagogue, right? And he would preach to the Jews, what would happen in every single synagogue? Some would believe. Many would reject the gospel. Many would reject the gospel. So so Paul is now asking this question, okay, why are there unbelieving Jews? I mean, I'm willing to be a curse for them, but why are there unbelieving Jews? Jews. Have the promises of God failed? Look at verse 6. He says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. It's not that God's promises have come to naught. Then he explains an important principle, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So, just because you're a Jew doesn't mean that you're ever actually saved. Yes, you have the promises of God, but it doesn't mean that you actually believed. It doesn't mean you actually trusted in those promises. You were born into this covenant, but it doesn't mean that you ever actually exercised faith in the covenant promises that God has given. Notice that phrase, not all Israel belongs to Israel. That last, the, the, the second way that he's using Israel is to describe the true people of God. He's saying there's a, true, there's a true Israel, and not all who belong to ethnic Israel belong to the true Israel. Do you see that? Really important to see that. Then he says, verse 7, God said, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's in reference to Ishmael. Remember, there were two sons that Abraham had, one by Hagar and then the child of promise by Sarah. And God said that the promise is going to come through Isaac, not Ishmael. Send him and Hagar away. This child, not Ishmael, is the son of promise. Then he says, Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Okay, that's self-explanatory. So basically what he's, the argument that he's saying is, is look, uh, in, in the economy of God, God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. Now you ask, well, that's obvious because Ishmael was the the son of a slave. Of course, God's going to choose Isaac. But Paul gets it a little tighter in his argument. Look what he says next. He says, and not only that, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Remember, Rebekah conceived how many kids? Twins, twos. Look, look, look what he says here. This is, man, this is sobering, fascinating. He says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Now, look, look, look at this clarification. Not because of works. So it's not based on the works of either of the boys, either Esau or Jacob, but because of God who calls. Rebecca was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let me explain that a little bit. Was Jacob a good guy? Jacob was a bad guy. Really, Jacob was a deceiver. Jacob was a mama's boy. I mean, Jacob, not, not that being a mama's boy is bad, <laughs> necessarily. But Jacob was a liar, right? I mean, you look at Jacob's early years. Is there anything becoming of Jacob? No. What did Jacob deserve? The judgment of God. Now we know Esau was also a bad guy, really bad guy. What did both of these guys deserve? judgment. Judgment of God. But God, because he's God, chose to exercise mercy on one. Not both. One. Now, Paul anticipates your thinking. What are you thinking? That's not fair. Why would you choose to exercise mercy on one and not the other? Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. How is that possible? Because they both deserve judgment. So just because God chooses to exercise mercy on one doesn't mean that he's being unjust to the other. Now, look at verse 15. Look what he quotes. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on on whom I have compassion. He's saying God is free. You say, well, I'm free. Yeah, but God's more free. God has the freedom to exercise divine mercy and compassion to whomever he chooses. That is the divine sovereignty of God. God doesn't proactively make someone evil. That would be wrong. The way that God hardens someone is by removing his hand of grace. In sin, we are naturally inclined towards evil. We've talked about this. So when God hardens someone, he he pulls back his hand of grace from that person. So it's not an active hardening it's it's god restraining his grace and mercy so that person is left in their sin and when and when we're left in our sin what do we do we become more calloused more hardened that's how god hardened pharaoh and that's how god hardens people god says okay i'm i'm pulling back my grace my mercy and and paul says he hardens then whomever he wills he has mercy on whomever he wills so you're 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 left asking this question. Then, verse 19. Again, Paul anticipates your question: Why does he still find fault then? For who can resist his will? Isn't that, isn't that the question? Okay, if if God is sovereign over salvation, and no one can resist the will of God, then then what are we doing here? Who can resist the will of God? Now, our natural thought is: Okay, well. Paul's going to answer back with some sort of, well, people are responsible agents, we have free will, something like that, right? You think that that would be the logical response. Yeah, but you're still at fault. But look at what Paul's response is. He says, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Huh. <laughs> He's saying, God is God. And who are we? question the divine freedom of God, to have mercy on whomever he has mercy. Why? Because God made us. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make Out of the same lump, one vessel vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles. Look, I know this is really heavy, but this right here is the borderline to understanding the weightiness of God. You understand this and you've crossed into new territory. When you understand that God is going to honor His name and that God presses that reality in upon us. And he shows us that in his name that he has this divine freedom to have mercy and to save whomever he likes. And if he desires, to pull back. And by so doing, harden whomever he desires. So what, what's our response to that? The response is to realize that your salvation is completely and totally of divine grace of God. That God found you. If you're in Christ, God found you and had mercy on you and had compassion on you, not because you were a good person, but because he desired to have mercy and compassion on you. Listen to this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, If your view of salvation in any respect doesn't give all the glory to God, you haven't understood salvation properly. So what I've just showed you, and, and this is why, by the way, Paul goes all the way back and quotes God in the encounter with Moses, where God is proclaiming his name to be honored. Is Paul is saying, look, to really understand God, and things the way they are, you need to understand this about your salvation is that all of it is orchestrated by him, and we're not to worry about uh, the people that God doesn't choose for salvation that's not that's not something that you and I have to bear that's God's choice. I assume that everybody that I encounter is chosen by God and I and I do all things to win all men to Christ. And I persuade as much as I can to win them to Christ. But I also know in the final analysis that it depends upon God who has mercy. God reveals this so that we might feel that heaviness and that weightiness of who He is of his name, and that we might praise him and honor him. That every detail in this world is sovereignly orchestrated by him and even ordained by him, and especially our salvation. And we could talk a lot more about man's responsibility to believe the gospel and, and the free offer of the gospel, and all those things. But that's not what Paul's focused on here. He's focused on the honor and glory of God. And our response then is to turn and honor and glorify his name. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.